0: Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of *Tertium Morganum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we're discussing Chapter 7. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, And Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. So chapter seven, this is to me the the cutoff of the themes that have run from chapters one to, well, to seven and uh, the last chapter before we start a new phase of the book. So in this chapter, this is where the scaffold of analogies is dismantled, abandoned, if you like, and the next step in the pursuit of the answer to the question is three-dimensional space a property of the world or a property of the knowledge of the world. And Spensky takes this chapter to round off his examination of what is space, and he turns to mathematics and geometries. And from my reading of the book I got a lot out of the mathematics. The geometry left me what is all this, but I have I have got to a point where I can explain it now. Um, so I'd like to start with first looking at what he talks what he looks at with when it comes to mathematics in relation to explaining dimensionality. So we've studied um the relations with well, what he says is, now that we have studied those relations which our space itself bears within, we shall return to the question, um, but what in reality do dimensions of space represent and why are there three of them? So he, he then goes on to say we are a little conscious of this and it seems to us a paradox because we speak of dimensions of space, but it remains a fact that mathematics does not sense the dimensions of space. The question arises, how can such a fine instrument of analysis as mathematics not feel dimensions if they represent some real properties of space? And I thought that was an interesting um, point. So I'm, I'm going to start with you, Pete. Uh, what What do you have to say on Ospensky's analysis of mathematics?
1: First of all, I don't think that it's such a fine instrument of analysis. Analyzing what? Um because of what comes later uh literally later on the same page in my uh, version of the book uh i because he's a mathematician i i I think he puts it on uh, more of a pedestal than he does mathematics is a property of our three-dimensional understanding of the world uh, and that becomes quite clear later on as even he admits so just because he's a mathematician i don't think he should he, he ought to assign something wonderful to it in the in the eyes of the reader who comes across this and thinks, yeah mathematics well yeah and if it doesn't fit in with mathematics it must something must be wrong with it i actually suggest that it's the other way around that the, the problem is that mathematics is just another tool of our three-dimensional experience of our reality whether that's whether that's a universal reality or not so i think he's actually um that mathematics on a pedestal that it doesn't necessarily deserve it is fabulous for analyzing things in our three-dimensional reality but i don't think that you can say per se that it is a fine instrument of analysis because as he goes on to say very very soon in this chapter <laughs> it doesn't analyze um beyond the third dimension and but then, then again, we're, we're assuming that there is a dimension beyond the third, aren't we? So what, we've, what we're saying is that mathematics is actually quite useful for what we're trying to investigate. It doesn't make it a fine instrument of analysis.
0: I think he's, uh, he, he goes further to say that the reason he's saying this is that, uh, well, yeah, I, I, I can't uh, confirm nor deny whether it is a fine instrument of anything, but what, he's, what he further goes to say is that Anything in mathematics describes something uh, should well should describe something that is tangible. So when you're looking at algebra, you go a plus b equals c. Well, they're just representations. Hang on,
1: hang on. You, you see, you see what you just did. You just did exactly what he does. When you use the word should, you, you you've blown it apart. You can't analyze anything with a should. Uh, th- okay. that, that leaves it open.
0: <laughs> okay, let me rephrase that then. Mathematics typically has a correlation to the real world <laughs> does that suit you better <laughs> no so it's not typically- at all
1: because then, because are we not discussing what is the real world we suppose i thought the whole thing that we've been discussing for six chapters is uh, is this the real world this world of three dimensions or is there a fourth or or even dimensions beyond And if all that mathematics can do is describe this three-dimensional world, then we're wasting our time using that to try to analyze um, what what it is that we're actually looking at. It's fantastic. And Euclidean geometry is fantastic in our third dimension. Wonderful, brilliant. But um, we're not talking about the third dimension. If we were just talking about three-dimensional space, uh, we wouldn't even be here describing it, would we? We wouldn't need to. We wouldn't be talking about it. We wouldn't be discussing it.
0: Okay, so just if I can just finish my point and just just take it to a to to where where he's taking. Yeah, it. go on. Then. He says that yeah. mathematics typically has a correlation to the the dimension. Typically, mm. so with algebra, a plus b equals c. A represents something. B I, represents something. I, I c wasn't. Yeah, something. I get that. I wasn't.
1: I wasn't. That now you've taken it further uh, further down than the point that I was just discussing. I can I can do that, and I've I've underlined all of that. Uh, we, we've we got things to discuss there, but, you know, literally I, it was just that one line that I was discussing, that it's not that fine an instrument because it's not being able to describe or analyse anything else. That was all I was saying.
0: Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. Well, want, you, I, I will agree with you there. Um, maybe I'll just hold off on my, my thought and heart, see what you've got to say, Sue. Before, no, no. Well, we're, we're, obviously, we're, yeah. Yeah, because we are going to go into what he's talking about.
2: I found this chapter short but in some concepts very difficult and I think what he has done is, what Spensky's done many times before, laboured a certain point and then come in the very last paragraph to what he thinks is the most important point and assumed knowledge that we understand what he means by the word psyche and that he has, you know, he's just spent all this time rambling on, come to the nitty-gritty and said, well... Here it is. And I looked at it and thought, well, okay. But what Rambling. Mean? So you're a tad harsh. You're a tad harsh with rambling. Well, I think he does <laughs> no. rambling. I think he rambling. too. About I think scrambled Neuclidean in some cases. Sometimes scrambled. <laughs> and what has happened is he has some terminology and some concepts here that really are very specific, I believe, probably to his time. So when I did the old Wikipedia, dare I say, on Euclidean geometry, It talks about the fact that this, uh, from Euclides, Euclides, um, that he was 2,000 years, this has stayed in place. And then the non-Euclidean started out with Einstein, who was quite new and novel, of course, back in the early 1900s. And then he talks about the metaphysics, uh, well, meta-geometry. Meta-geometry, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff here that is just not really well-defined and but perhaps was more clear in his era amongst his colleagues.
0: Well, I think we're going to work our way through all this too. I mean, yeah, I dig I your point because I had to read this chapter a couple of times. It's only a few pages long. But I think I've teased out at least some, some talking points. So let's just work our way through it and uh, see what we can come up with. The point I, I, I think he was making with mathematics that I liked, the point I liked that made me go, oh, my God, was that he said that if dimensions existed as different, like uh, one dimension is different to two dimensions is different to three dimensions, etc. why cannot mathematics describe dimensions? And I thought, well, of course, mathematics describes dimensions. A cube is, you know, exactly that, a length times breadth times height, which is length cubed. But, but he then points out, well, so is on a straight line, a line of three centimetres. Three, you know, then a line of nine centimeters. That's not That's three squared, and then a line of twenty-seven is three cubed. So you can still represent on a flat uh, line. Hold on, Uh, can
1: can we just like go through the stuff like in order? Uh, I mean, I've got before that that he's talking about. Well, there's something here that you know that that's been glossed over. If you're going to discuss that little part, because uh, before he says that, he's talking about the correlations of magnitudes is the problem of mathematics, and the correlations must be between something. Instead of our algebraical A, B, and C, it must be possible to substitute some reality. But he doesn't go on to describe what that some reality might be. He then goes on to do what you're talking about. Uh, What does he mean by this, this reality? But I said,
0: I talked about magnitude. Well, I didn't say the word magnitude, but I talked about it having to represent something. But anyway.
1: Yes, but yeah, but then you glossed over what that something might be. What what's something? because yes, what is well, what, what yes. is the great thing that mathematics has that, that 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 can be represented by something before we move on? What is that something?
0: I think that something is he's referring to algebra. So if I go a plus b equals c, and I have I know what a is and I know what c is, so I can work out b. So a might be a, a number. Uh, three and C might be a number five, so I can work out the B is two. Like, he's saying it relates to something. So if I'm looking at working out an unknown, um, in the real world, and, and I must say that I use algebra a lot in the real world, and I've, I've often been challenged that no one uses it, but I do. I use it a lot to work out the unknown. But that's about as far as it goes. Um, when he talked okay. about describing dimensions that way, he's then saying that, well, it doesn't work.
1: Uh, okay, I, I still don't think we know what the substance is.
2: I think, if I may just put a comment in, on uh, when we say here, for this this for this A, B and C, is impossible to substitute any real magnitudes which are capable of expressing the correlations and dimensions. Where I, I just think that's a ramble. I mean, I think that in, in, in Spensky's mind, that magnitudes obviously mean something very clear. Uh, I've pondered this for some time and perhaps I'm a little dim, but uh, I am wondering, is he saying that we don't really know what A is? Is that what he's saying? We can't, when we go back to our very basics of the world yeah. and consciousness as being known, that we really don't know what A is. And in the process, I just, I, I just out of the blue, I went back looking at the, um for the unknowns, back in the very beginning chapters and I just came across the very beginning page before we start chapter 1 and it says it's from paul the apostle he's got this little quote the epistle to the Epis, uh, ephesians 3:18 uh, that ye be rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height now i do not know whether that has a relevance to this chapter but it just happened to come up because he's just at the end of it all he's saying well Loves where you're going to find it all from in any case. So I don't know. I'm going to say that that... makes
1: more sense than talking about A, B and C because I have no problem with algebra. I I loathe and despise these stupid Facebook memes about, oh, well, another day's gone by and I never needed algebra. I'm thinking, well, if ever you put a kettle on to boil some water, you bloody did. Because the electronic circuits in your kettle, darling, um, weren't designed just out of the blue. People needed some mathematical yeah, input uh, to design those circuits. So people of you, people that are driving to work instead of walking or going on a horse and cart, you've used algebra today. You what? You turn the television on, you morons. Yeah. Oh God, you've used algebra today. So you know, I I so I, don't, I I'm not arguing about that. I'm just I just wanted to discuss this chapter that when he puts I, I will always. I, Talk about these things that he glosses over as though it's okay. I actually think that what he means by I think, and I, I mean this is only an, a, a wild stab in the dark, that the substance that he's on about, the universal truth behind algebra, is number. Numbers are universal symbols, and I think that yeah. that's what underlies algebra. That without without that's the solidity of numbers that you can sub, you can substitute. Then algebra is literally um, open to interpretation whereas we understand algebra as not being open to interpretation the formulas do derive a certain answer if you know if they're followed through to a conclusion and they allow so us you... to get I don't, I don't have a problem with algebra i have a pro I just i just think that when he says that something solid behind them is he ought to tell us what that something is he knows because he's a mathematician he, he knows what's in his head but we don't
0: so his his quote is, he said, uh, instead of algebraic or A, B, and C, it must be plausible or must be possible to substitute some reality. This is the That's a b c C of mathematics. A, B, and C. These are credit bills. They can be good ones yeah. only if behind them there is something, There there is a real something. And real they can something. be counterfeited yeah. if behind them there is no reality whatever. That's interesting. You, you know, I, I think would... you've got a, a good point there, Pete. I, I kind of read that and went, oh, uh yeah I I get algebra and yes I use numbers in algebra like that's that's it gives you a number uh it doesn't give you mm. an apple or a um you know a, the time or anything I, else it gives you a number
1: what's quite interesting is though that um mathematics at its cutting edge now doesn't necessarily give you a number i mean we're talking, i mean i can talk about algebra as i was using it in school and you know it didn't necessarily give me a number at the end of the formulas that we were working with, but at the we all kind of understood that we could substitute numbers in there and get the same result. Algebra allowed us to get, get uh, gave us a way of reasoning complex mathematical situations where any number could be substituted for one of the uh, symbols or letters. And and that's cool, true of all you know,
0: formulas, really. I mean, all yeah, I, I are agree like with you, because I was going to
1: say, yeah, cal- calculus works in the same way. But I I, I do think that it, uh, that's the something that he, I think that's the something that he means is number. Number is solid uh, and it gives, it gives us a root a foundation. But moving on.
0: <laughs> so do you have anything to add to that?
2: Well, look, on the second page or page 64 of our version, it says, we really know that all three dimensions are in substance identical and it is possible, so that's length, depth, and height. height. Length, depth, and breadth. That is possible to regard each of the three dimensions either as following the sequence of the first, second, and the third or the other way around. So this alone proves that dimensions are not mathematical magnitudes. So is he saying that because I can start with either the length or the depth or the breadth in, in analysing a three-dimensional item, that I can, because I can move them into different spaces, into A, B, or C, as they may or may not be, uh, and make any one of them A, any one of them B, or any one of them C. But that, that they don't have substance. But in the matter of dimensions, it is as though mathematics sees more than we do, or farther we do, through some boundaries which arrest us, but do not, but not it. It sees that no realities whatever correspond to our concepts of dimensions. Is that what he means? I do not really know. Are you talking
0: about the the paragraph that says we? Because I think my book, which is the nineteen twenty version, which has probably been revised since then, he says we really know that all three dimensions are in substance identical. Is that the where you're starting that's from? The, that's
2: that the, it, that's the paragraph. Yes, that and yeah. the next one.
0: Well, I looked at that and it didn't make sense to me in my version of the book. The nineteen twenty one. It says we really know that all three dimensions are in substance identical. It doesn't talk about length, breadth, or height. That it is possible to regard each yeah. of these three dimensions either as following the sequence: the first, the second, the third, or the other way around. And when I read that sentence, I went, "What do you mean the other way round?" I was, uh, I was hoping somebody else knew. <laughs> one
1: of you guys. Well, he's talking about length, 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 height, or breadth.
0: But in this, in. But he doesn't mention in this version length, breadth, to height. So in your versions, he no. does, does he? He talks, he talks about. No, 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 no,
1: no. I'm just. You just, you just said you didn't know what they meant, and I'm saying that when oh. he says the first, the second, or the third, that sequence. What we don't know is whether or not um, it's height, breadth, length, or or what. we don't know which which oh. is first, second, and third in the sequence. That's all.
0: See, you know, um, but well, I've, I've, got le-
1: that- I've got loads. Be- before we even come to that, I've got loads in the line. But carry on.
0: Yeah, okay. Well I just thought if I'll just finish that thought, that the first, second and third referred to the first dimension, the second dimension, and the third dimension. I was totally off the recto, I didn't get the length very high. Anyway, let's go back. Well that, go
1: yeah, back. But, but but it could it could mean the first, second and third, couldn't it? Because the first the first, second and third are all, all parts of the, the third dimension. They're parts that we understand.
0: And I suppose when you think about it, um, lines, you know, one line, two lines, that's a plane. And then a plane. Lines, yeah. a third dimension,
1: yeah. Yeah. Ah, man. But before then, he's talking about how three dimensions and all dimensions could be represented by a single line, isn't he? This is the bit that's just been missed out um, this, this whole stuff. Um, the first, second, and third power. And then if the line is called a square, the sides of which are equal to this line, it's called a squared. A cube is a cubed. And this is. And then he talks about. He comes back to Hinton and the tesseract. This was interesting. And he says this idea of representing um, dimensions in terms of powers um, is something that could be easily flawed in Hinton's view of it. So. You know, because Hinton is saying that if we're looking at A to the power of three, A cubed in other words, representing a three dimensional object, and then Hinton goes on to say that the fourth dimension then logically should be A to the power of four. And I think brutally <laughs> Spensky destroys Hinton by saying and, well, it, and you think up he's to said. this <laughs> point he's He loves Hinton. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then it's it's too Brutai. <laughs> and he's stabbed in the back, so so he says, look, look, if you, if you want to represent it by using this algebraic formula and using um, numerical powers, then forget it, because we can we can represent an infinite number of powers just on a straight line. You know, a segment of a line that is five centimeters long um, can be represented at twenty five centimeters by um, a squared. Five squared. And that and a yeah, squared. Yes. Five, five squared. And so on and so on and so on. And we can do this infinitely. In other words, if we're using um, numerical powers uh, in that way, uh, that infinity can be re- represented by a straight line. So we've got to find another way of doing it. Now, this, this I think was the whole point of him mentioning something solid having to be behind algebra if we're going to use algebra to try to describe anything. I think this is this is where he makes the point about it, where it comes in. But he's still not he's still not absolutely straightforward about that, is he? Yeah. Come and on. then he says,
0: how shall we understand that mathematics does not feel dimensions? that it is impossible to express mathematically the difference between dimensions, Exhibit A is what, what we just explained. And then he said, is it possible to understand and explain it by one thing only, namely that the difference does not exist? That, my friend, now, this is, is, is what where I we, think is his point.
1: Absolutely, now, that's where we're coming to because dimensions are, as he's, we've spent loads of time talking about this in previous chapters, that the dimensions are a figment of our imagination. This is how we see the world, but that there is a real, an underlying reality of just one thing where there is no difference in time, where we don't see time and space as being different, where where the past, the future, and the present are accessible at all times, where where spatial dimensions are like one, one point in space actually can be the center and the circumference at the same time. It's
0: it that that's the bit that blow blew my mind. Did, Sue, what did you what what did you think? <laughs> did, it, did that give you a, a brain bend? <laughs> Look
2: this this chapter gave me a brain bend, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> because because it just wasn't, I mean, so totally clear. But I think what he's saying is that, or oh, tell me what you think. This he's saying you cannot distinguish between? and a, a length as a, a separate item to a height and to a depth, uh, they can all interchange. Yeah, that's what it, and therefore, yeah, first, that's what one dimension, second dimension, third dimension are not segregated out and they are not clearly defined. There's not one yeah. single thing that relates only to that to length, one that relates only to height and one that relates only to depth. We interchange them all the time within, and, and therefore treat three dimensions as one unit. We treat it mathematically well, as well. Well that three dimensions
0: unit. actually exists and can be measured and can, you know, is a thing and and he's I guess blown it away and said, Well, is it? Or is it just just a construct of our own doing?
2: And because he's very, it's a very, very interesting point so yeah. because we have been raised with the A B C and the A squared and cubed and we have done this and for two thousand years Euclidean geometry was just the bee's knees. But here they've come in with Einstein in this t- era, with uh, Espensky, and everyone saying, well, you know, we're not so sure anymore.
1: Euclidean geometry does allow us to actually do things in the three-dimensional world. It, it allows us to actually make things happen. So I still think it, that it's valid. I, I think non-Euclidean geometry and meta-geometry are the sort of things that keep... Um, mathematicians at the highest level of research employed but i'm waiting to see where their value is to us in the real world (laughs) and i'm not holding my breath so
0: shall i give it so just just before we start on this can i give some definitions of what these terms mean so we can then launch into into it yes
1: that
0: sounds fair okay so because I had to look these up, Euclidean geometry is a study of plane and solid figures on the basis of axioms, and axioms just mean rules and theorems employed by the Greek mathematician Euclid. It's a rough outline. You know, in a rough outline, Euclidean geometry is the plane and solid geometry commonly taught, commonly taught in secondary school. So it's the geometry we learn at school. You know, mm-hmm. you know, distance between two points is a line. Uh, you know, two lines. Um, parallel to each other will never meet. Uh, the triangle has 180 degrees. You know all that good stuff. So then, this is—I laughed when I read this definition: non-Euclidean geometry. Anything not included in Euclidean geometry. <laughs> so, Very clear. I mean, that, that that really opens it right up. But in essence. Uh, it's the it's the geometry of curved surfaces and spheres, and it was developed originally to um, understand the movement of stars and planets and the shape of the Earth and how to use it in understanding and solve you know, navigational problems over long distances. So the non-Euclidean originally had its its footing in you know with the sciences trying to explain things that didn't live on a plane and travel in a straight line. You know, so how how are we going to predict where um, the ship will go? if we're on a curved surface called the earth etc now meta geometry I there's very very little definition of that on the internet in my searches so I've oh, gone back to oh, I've gone yeah <laughs> so I've gone back to what Spensky has said and these are this is what he says the consideration of the possible properties of lines lying out of our space and the relation of these lines and their angles to the lines angles surfaces and solids of our geometry forms the subject of metageometry metageometry regards the three-dimensional sphere as a section of higher space It is impossible to regard meta-geometrical lines as a distance between points in our space, and it is impossible to represent them as forming any figures in our space. Even with meta-geometry, a form of Euclidean geometry, all cannot imagine that a line can be independent of a surface, and because of this, um, it cannot transcend the three-dimensional world. So therein lies... What those three geometries are, and I think what Dispensky is doing here is he's saying, "Okay, with well, mathematics, reckons there's no no difference between dimensions. Let's have a look at geometry, because geometry certainly does have some, you know, lines forming surfaces and forming three dimensional solids. But does it explain?" our three-dimensional space, does it? And so he's looking at the three different types of geometry to say, well, have we got an explanation there? Can some can somebody bring out an explanation? And his point here, he says, all these ge- uh, geometries rely on axioms, i.e. expressions that describe the difference of properties between various kinds of surfaces. So these axioms can explain properties of, the, of things in our three-dimensional world, but do they explain what is a surface? Therein
2: lies the question. Over to you guys. To say what? He, he knows mathematics better than we do. But, but again, I just wonder if we're not... I mean, he's talked in earlier on about where big physics and little physics doesn't agree, or we have discussed that in our, our podcast. Yeah, we and have. Perhaps
1: and perhaps we're now it's, it's discussing not...
2: where big mathematics and little mathematics doesn't agree, the equivalent thereof. Where are the? Is, is he talking about where he sees the boundaries and the fact that the boundaries don't line up? When We, we, we can use it in our... Day to day spot, we can talk about our, you know, our desk having length, depth, breadth, you know, and we can we can put all that all together. But it's, it's not. Very going to it's very useful. It's very useful. It's useful, yeah. but it's not necessarily defined. And we are defining A in terms of B in terms of C, rather than A is X is is this, uh, you know, you, it's something that is only in the in the one in each of those three dimensions and cannot be in the, any of the others. So if you've got something that can uh, can exist in all three, is his point then that doesn't belong to any one? And therefore we've never defined any one of the three dimensions.
0: I think he comes to the point where he says, you know, all these different types of geometries explain things, but none of them move out of the three-dimensional sphere. They they all explain things in the three-dimension
1: the three-dimensional that's, that's experience. Actually, and that is exactly what he's saying. I mean, it's not, it's not ambiguous. You know, um, he says it earlier in, in the matter of dimensions, it's as though mathematics sees more than we do or farther than we do through some boundaries which arrest us, but not it, and sees no realities whatsoever correspond to our concepts of dimensions. In other words, mathematics is a tool that... Um, tells us, if we if we can listen to it in the right way, that, do, that our three dimensions do not exist as a universal reality. And then, yeah, geometry yeah. from the standpoint of mathematics is an artificial system, quote, artificial system for solving of problems based on conditional data, deduced probably from the properties of our psyche. In other words, of our understanding of the reality that surrounds us, the three dimensions. But what he's saying is that we're using Euclidean geometry then to make sense of what we, what is possibly an illusion, um, you know, the, the product of our psyche and a, and a collective agreement by all of us that these are the rules of what we see around us. Uh, but it is a conditional thing. It's a way of making sense of what we see. That doesn't mean that what we've agreed to s- that we see is the ultimate reality. It's just a way of us being able to use and utilise the three dimensions that we're having as an experience. Uh, so he's now coming to the conclusions that these things are great, in, as you said Alice in the third dimension these are the tools we can use to live in the third dimension and progress and, and and so on but beyond that we could be in trouble trying to apply our rules to something that we cannot understand that is that, that goes by different rules than the three-dimensional world that we perceive
0: and all of these all of these methods anchor themselves in the three-dimensional concept mm. They they don't yep. They
2: don't go out of it. Um, Sue? See, I have a little trouble here with Spensky because he throws in the term psyche, but he doesn't. He's yeah. previously <laughs> using the word consciousness. There's <laughs> throw no throw definition away line. Throw away line. Of what is psyche, you know. <laughs> I mean, is that is he saying that, that this is our personal experience of consciousness? And yeah. how is psyche differing from consciousness? Because he's saying up in the beginning of this chapter that he doesn't think, and he throughout this chapter, he doesn't believe that mathematics relates to our consciousness.
0: And now he's but talking about. Has he about mentioned psyche before? Because I know he mentions it a lot in the book, but has he mentioned it up to this point? Is this the first time he mentions it?
2: I, I'm I i do not recall seeing it before. I'm going to have a look. Do you, Pete? Because he finishes off in grand style at the end with the word words okay, "back to the video ref." How do you spell it? P S Y C H E.
0: Hey, so yes chapter seven I think is going to be our first time
2: right so, yep, so chapter, somehow,
0: this is the Robert, first time he mentions the word
2: we have gone through all this stuff and in gets thrown this word and uh, and he talks
1: about psychical forms he talks about psyche and I yeah, so psych- down, psychical forms are ideas these are this is the product of our, our thinking. But is he saying
2: that's a relationship to our brain interacting with consciousness? Or is he saying that this is Uh... consciousness itself? What exactly is his definition?
1: It would totally depend upon the translator. Absolutely totally, because at the time he was speaking, it's the time of Freud. So we would know Freudian and Jungian ideas of the psyche. He would have known them. They They would have been plain. And he would have known what that was. Psyche is definitely a, a product of Greek philosophy as well, because we even have the stories of Cupid and Psyche, so we know where, why the term Psyche is used to describe the mind and the, the workings of the mind and the understandings of the mind. What we've all come to is a collective agreement about what this world is that is a collective agreement without which we could not function as um animals with any kind of social functionality whatsoever if we didn't all agree about what was a solid about what was a a straight line about what what up is and what down is um and and length and breadth if we didn't have this unwritten agreement that that forms part of our dna if you like um we couldn't function and this is this is what he's Clearly talking differentiate. about when he needs psyche, but he, but he, I was going to let's say, di- but he doesn't differentiate.
2: Let's different, let's go back and say, because he said the only two knowns we've got are consciousness and the world around us. So, is he now yeah, combining the world that us. to is he combining the world around it and our consciousness and calling it psyche? Is that what, he, what he's saying? Is he, is he relating this to our brain interpretation?
1: Well, I don't know, but I, I don't think so because uh, I think you'll understand, as, especially as we go through, that consciousness is, going, is what takes us beyond three dimensions. Psyche doesn't. Psyche exists in our minds, our ideas, our thoughts, which which are absolutely subjective, but based upon this agreement of what we all perceive to be the three-dimensional world that we have. So believe is that is
2: inhabit. psyche, consciousness, impacting on the human brain to give a sensation?
1: I don't think it's consciousness at all personally but there you go it sounds to me like psyche is our
0: interpretation
2: of the world it's it's
1: mm.
0: our
2: thoughts it's it's the untangible yeah that's um that, and he's just given us this little throwaway concept and it will Yeah i know he should but... have
1: defined it because when since it's the first time he's used it he should have given us a definition of what he means by it it's it's difficult to see how he's meaning anything other than the Freudian, Jungian, and the new psych- psychology psychiatry meaning of psyche of his time. It was the big thing then. Um, if you're a mathematician and a scientist, maybe it's unimportant to you. But in in that world, in the world of neuroscience, psyche was a big thing, and and it was a big term, and it meant a lot at that at that time. Um, I. Don't, I can't see why I can't see why he would use that word if he wasn't referring to psyche in the sense that everybody that had heard of that word would have understood it at that at that point in history. The, the, there would be little point without redefining it. We don't know what the Russian was, so we need to know why the translator used the word psyche if the Russian word is different. Um, but. Clearly, psyche has been used. It, it wasn't a small throwaway word like it is now at that time. The exploration of the psyche was something very exciting after Freudian, particularly Freudian analysis and then Jungian analysis. That word really did have a resonation at that time.
0: And he's probably assuming that the audience that he's uh, pitching to will get this, will we'll know what that means because, of the, as you say, yeah, but- at the time it was very popular.
1: I know, but I still think that uh, a little explanation might have been in order, one or two lines. <laughs> he would have been nice, so that we, we would know.
0: <laughs> I think, Pete, if you were editing that book, you would have made an editing point.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I would have just written a note, yeah. I, I would, I would yeah. have given that note, but, but who's to say? I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not saying that I know that I'm right. I... Perhaps he's fallen into the trap of
2: calling it self-evident.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> self, self-evident. <laughs> we, we've given him the official finger waggle on that. I think we need to move on to where his journey yeah. has has yeah, taken us for stars. these first, yeah, <laughs> these first seven chapters. So I'm going to do some quoting, and then I'm going to get your feedback. So he he at the end of this chapter, he he then sort of sums up where the um where the analogies and all the Various theories that he's explained in the first six chapters have letters. So he says, Beginning with Kant, who affirms that space is a property of the receptivity of the world by our consciousness, I intentionally deviated far from this idea and regarded space as a property of the world. Along with Hinton, I postulated that our space itself bears within it the relations and permits us to establish its relations to higher space, And on the foundation of this postulate, I built a whole series of analogies which somewhat clarified for us the problems of space and time and their mutual correlations, but which, as was said, did not explain anything concerning the principal question of the causes of the three-dimensionality of space. So I think when I started reading this, I thought, uh uh-oh, hang on, I finally understood some things, and what's he saying? It's all rubbish? (laughs) But I think what he is saying is, I've built the scaffold, and has it has it achieved my goal? No. So the scaffold has its has its use, but it's not the answer in its entirety. That's what
2: I think he's saying there. Any comments? Well, again, I find this interesting because, and Ali, because he says here, I regard space as a property of the world, but back over we were talking, he says it relates to our psyche. And as our psyche a part of the world, I know you it's can't like let it go. Point, can you? you. Well, you I can't I, let it go. Miss, I'm not. It's not that kind of to go. I'm missing his point because that, to me, seems like it relates to what Kant is saying. Because Kant says, talks about it being a property of of, of the, if the psyche is is our interpretation of the world, which is the property of the receptivity of the world by our consciousness, which is what I think he means by psyche, right? He didn't, now he's saying, "Well, I deviated from that. So it just seems a circular point, and I think at the end of it all, we're coming out with this concept. That he says, we really haven't got a clue about it. You know
0: well, no, he says we haven't got a clue about it using analogy. I think he's got a, he's got a lot of clues about it, but I think he's he's come to the point to say this has not this has not ended up giving us the full answer. It's given us something but not enough. That's what I think he's saying.
2: Ah, oh, Now, this might be interesting, us. We bear within ourselves the conditions of our space and therefore within ourselves we shall find the conditions which will permit us to establish correlations between space and higher space. In other words, oh, we shall find you're the conditions oh, yeah, of the three-dimensionality of the world in our psyche, in our receptive apparatus. So perhaps that, Pete, is where he has defined our psyche as our receptive apparatus.
1: That's, that's not... Um, necessarily a, an interpretation that psychology was using at the time. I actually uh, think that he's separating psyche from um, our receptive apparatus there, but I have actually put a big asterisk by that because that's something that I wanted us to to discuss whether or not he is. Uh, if, if he's describing our psyche as only being our receptive apparatus, apparatus then I don't know where he's got that idea from, especially at the time he was writing. But uh, I don't, I don't know, because he doesn't explain it. I don't know.
2: And, and if I go to the very, very last bit of the chapter, again he says, "Well, well don't, don't jump ahead We'll you. get to there
0: we, if we've got can, we
2: can
1: come back. To and... Well, okay, I mean, I, to I, 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 i got, I've got stuff before we even got to where you started talking about. So you know.
0: Let's go back. Let's rewind, so we're not jumping too far ahead. Because he does build this up. So, so sorry, Pete. What did I? What did I miss out on?
1: Well, um, I mean, uh, I've got a lot of stuff. Um, I when he's uh, talking, he was talking earlier about the consideration of the possible properties of lines lying lying out of our space, the relation of these lines and their angles to the lines, angles, surfaces of solids of our geometry forms the subject of meta geometry, and then. I've made a note. Is there a need for geometry at all if we consider reality from a point beyond three-dimensional space? Because if we go beyond three-dimensional space, do we even need to consider um, geometry if if everything is one thing? If a point can be in what we would consider more than one place simultaneously, which of course is what Quanta is now coming to to, to suggest that, that it can... Um, do we even need geometry to describe that space? What what do we use? We are using mathematics, but even the, even the mathematicians at that level are finding it difficult to describe. This is the blackboard syndrome. Blackboard here full of squiggles, blackboard way over there with squiggles, and the blackboard's in between empty because what we can't do is join up those two blackboards. Well, we're trying to use the tools that we know here to describe something that, those tools can't describe. So I just wonder if if geometry is even relevant at that point. Once we go beyond three dimensional, they can they can try to to create something called meta geometry, all they like. But uh, it's probably something else, and perhaps it shouldn't be called geometry at all. And we should think up a new name for it.
0: And I think that's what Spenceky's point was. All these things yeah. are, are anchored in three dimensional world, they do not extend far further than it. Well, he well, does he actually, make
1: he, actually, he says, and uh, because of this. He's talking about um, these investigators of non-Euclidean geometry. He says, because of this, he and many other geometers developed non-Euclidean geometry could not transcend the three-dimensional world. They can't. You, you, you know, it, it doesn't work. So is there a need?
0: The sentence after that, I didn't understand. He said, mechanics recognises the line in time i.e., such a line as it is impossible by any other means to imagine upon the surface, or as a distance between two points of space. This line is taken into consideration in the calculations pertaining to machines. So, I, I, I don't know what a line in time is and what it has to do with mechanics. Okay, right
1: points in time as opposed to two points in space now if you were designing a camshaft for a for a car engine it's got to revolve around in, in a non-circular motion uh, be, between points in space you've got to be able to predict exactly where it will be depending on the amount of force that's applied to that line so you need to know for example how many revs per minute <laughs> You know, the engine's going ah, yes. to go on. So, so this is what he's talking about, You, you that, that we use time and space and we use the difference between points in time and the points in space to to, de- to design mechanical engines or other mechanical devices. Yep. That's very
0: interesting, isn't it? I mean, because when he just made this point, but he didn't kind of elaborate, and I was thinking I didn't understand, but when you've explained that, that makes perfect sense. So that is a – it's outside of geometry
1: and have you ever considered why that branch of mathematics is called um, maths with mechanics it's because that's the algebraic forms that we're going to use uh, you know and we're going into calculus as well to to design things that can do things that move that have motion that that actually change our environment so, so and he is a mathematician and when he says mechanics recognizes the line in time you know to me that made perfect sense
0: and I'm glad you've explained it because now it makes perfect sense to me too. Thank you, I get it.
2: And Alice, I joined uh, I you it. with a big question mark there, but yes, Peter does. I, I had a question mark too. It's <laughs> <in> my mark. <laughs> <account. laughs> you would have got away without declaring your question mark. You had a You had us absolutely in your corner. <laughs>
1: Well, I, I have to say, I had to go over that paragraph several times.
2: <laughs> but Alice, this, and, and Pete, doesn't this really explain why this is such an interesting but also difficult book to read? Because... Oh my gosh, it's Do difficult. it by yourself well, yeah, when like you're trying it. to put this together. unless you can see it from top, bottom, inside, out, out, back to front, and upside down again, it doesn't always come into focus. The difficulty with this I, book is to bring the yeah. concepts into focus. You get a light
1: bulb moment. When it bonus. does, yeah. Yeah. When
2: it does, it's I, like, I,
1: oh. I keep getting the feel now Now that we're discussing it, the way that we do in, in these um, sessions that we're having, is I really keep coming to this conclusion from the point of view of an editor uh, of, of uh, a work of literature that, There are bits where he's so excited to get to the point he wants to make (laughs) that he leaves us standing. (laughs) He leaves us in his mess like, whoa, what was that? What's that all about? Do you know, Pete, he is the absolute
2: definition of ADHD because in an ADHD brain, (laughs) you start with a a problem and he's gone in and out, in and out, in and out of five or six different solutions, come up with the ones he wants and just, ah, A goes to E. (laughs) And has left out, B, C, D, in between for all the rest of us. And oh my gosh. I mean, I think the man's brilliant, but I think that's where it is. And, he is. and he's forgotten he's to explain to the rest of us. I, ha- I haven't got 80.
0: Oh, there's a rabbit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Look, yeah. All right. That's what I think it is. So, I think we're trying to interpret a very brilliant So yeah. without without the – he doesn't connect the dots for us. <laughs> yeah, but he does in yep. some places. Some places he he nails it,
0: and and oh, you yeah. just you just see it. And other places this is his throwaway line. Yeah, I'm getting to that, but over here is where I want to be. You know, yeah, get rid of that you uh, you know, sentence, sentence. Sentence. I'm typing, and he would be typing on a traditional <laughs> typewriter. You know, he's, yeah. he's, <laughs> as off, fast off, as right, his right fingers will go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever it was, or you know. So um, okay, so he says... Uh, moving forward, uh, Oh, have we have we caught up? Have you anything else you wanted to add that I hadn't uh, jumped over?
1: Oh, God, hey. loads, yeah. Um, it is necessary to establish whether three-dimensional space is a property of the world or the property of our knowledge of the world. And I'm going to suggest that it's the property of our knowledge of the world. I don't, he doesn't, he asks the question, but then he goes back to Kant and he says it's a property of the receptivity of the world by our consciousness. And I intentionally deviated far from this idea and regarded space as a property of the world. Now, again, he's using consciousness here because that's a word that Kant would use because Kant had lived long before we had the benefits of this great um, explosion of research into psychology in the late 19th, early 20th century. So... The word psyche wasn't in his <laughs> vocabulary. In his but psyche. I still, I still think that D- Uspensky should differentiate between the two and and let us know that. A, but a, he should. I mean, a little, a little sideline. If this is indeed what he meant, he could say, of course, when Kant mentions consciousness, it's what we would refer to in these days as the psyche. And I mean, a modern editor would make him make that distinction, but uh, he was writing for himself, and I'm not even sure that he had an editor. But you know, we. No, maybe we're... he didn't.
0: That's the thing. He he, he comes back to Hinton, and yes, uh, he?
1: says
0: because it, you know, and I think I think he's 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 back on Hinton's um,
1: yeah. side having, now. Having, says, destroyed, Hinton. having destroyed, him, he's making it up. He's put his arm around Hinton's shoulder. No, no, Your tesseract.
0: Tesseract are rubbish, but nonetheless, along, yeah. along with everything else you've said, you've got some good points. You postulated that our space itself bears within it the relations that permit us to establish its relations to higher space, and on the foundation of this po- uh, postulate, I build a whole. I build a whole series of analogies, which somewhat clarified yeah. for us the problems of space and time and their mutual correlation. So he did. He dragged Hinton right through all of that, yeah. um, but the which, as run- was said. Yeah, he goes, but which, as was said, did not explain anything concerning the principal question of the causes of three-dimensionality of space.
1: I um, love this, uh, this next paragraph. I underlined the whole damn thing.
0: Oh, <laughs> shall I? Uh, well, if it's the same one, because I did too. Is this where he starts the method well, of said, analogy? Says, is? the
1: method of analogy, yeah, a rather tormenting thing with you <laughs> walk in a vicious circle. Well, thank you for putting us in that vicious circle. <laughs> Yes, we were right. We walked right along with you in that circle. Yeah. It, says, it helps to elucidate certain things and the relations of certain things, but in substance it never gives a direct answer to anything. Well, thanks for that. That's, that's really nice. After, <laughs> but we did after enjoy many, it.
0: We did enjoy the ride. You know,
1: after many and long attempts to analyze complex problems, by the aid of the method of analogies, you feel the uselessness of all your efforts. <laughs> You feel that you're walking alongside a wall. That Thereupon, that. you begin to ex- experience simply a hatred and <laughs> aversion or analogies, <laughs> and you find yourself searching search in the direct way which leads you where you need to go. Ah.
0: I, I just, I killed myself laughing too. You could just see you him did. writing this. I've
2: gone through all this, and guess what? <laughs> You
1: can, you can feel the petulance though when he says, you begin to experience simply a hatred and aversion for analogies. That's a heck of a <laughs> phrase. And it, it is so out of character with everything he writes and the way that he writes and the way that he explains a hatred and aversion. It's like I'm sick of thinking these things. What for, you fools? <laughs> we can't do it. Get on the horse and come. He this was having way. a
0: bad day.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That was, I thought it was superb. I thought, well,
2: thanks thanks for that. I'm 78 pages into it. <laughs> Having said that, uh, yeah, I, I still believe the analogies are very, very, very useful and valuable simply to open our minds to the fact that there is a potential of something further than our three dimensions and, and I can comfortably take a step from one dimension to two dimensions to three dimensions and then to fourth. And above, and well, so he just opening hates, the door is the most important it. part. Yeah, he he's hates so it because he's gone a long way down the line, but that's okay. <laughs> we we are the novices starting in the process, so we haven't yet had full time to develop our hatred. We can nurse our wrath a little longer. It's almost like he said, "I've done it all for you, so you are with me? You understand where,
0: where all that's that led you to? Now let's get on with it. You know, like you know, I I, I want to get into the stuff I want to get into." Uh, that's, that's what I think he's, he's, he's got to that point. And, um, all right, so then he says, The problems of higher dimensions has usually been analysed by the method of analogies, and only very lately has science begun to elaborate that direct method, which will be shown later on. If we desire to go straight without deviating, we shall keep strictly up to the fundamental propositions of Kant. But if we formulate if we formulate Hinton's above mentioned thought from the point of view of these propositions, it will be as follows We bear within ourselves the conditions of our space, and therefore within ourselves we shall find the conditions which will permit us to establish correlations between our space and higher space. And I think that's his um
2: That is the that, most that's statement of this chapter. Yeah.
0: That's
2: yes. wonderful. He does go He does fabulous. further go
0: that's, yeah, that's where he's saying, forget the analogies. We've got to a point where we know that those conditions of our space are within ourselves. He says, in other words, we shall find the conditions of the three-dimensionality of the world in our psyche, in our receptive apparatus, and we shall find exactly where the conditions of the possibility of the higher-dimensional world. Propounding the problem in this way, we put ourselves upon the direct path and we shall receive the answer to our question, what is space and its three-dimensionality? Setting us up for chapter eight onwards.
2: But I think this is a wonderful, wonderful statement.
0: I think so too. I think that that's that is the sentence that says, uh, all this, despite despite the fact that I have loads and despised having to go through it all has got us to the point where we can say comfortably that we bear within ourselves the conditions of our space and therefore within ourselves we shall find the conditions which permit us to establish correlations between our space and
2: higher space. I think what he's doing here is empowering us and saying that it's not outside of you, it's not in Euclidean and non-Euclidean geometry, it's not in mathematics, it's not in physics, it's not in anything else. Is within yourself that you can find this solution, which really means it is available to everyone. It is not external. And he further says, how do we
0: approach the solution to this problem? Continuing on from what you're saying there, Sue, he says, how do we approach the solution of this problem plainly by studying our
2: consciousness and its properties? So to me that is saying consciousness comes from higher dimensions. It's the, it is the expression of higher dimensions on the third dimension. It is the funneling effect of down. And so if you look at it and see where the, the bugs are, then it may open a door for you to see higher and to, and to revert upwards into another dimension. That's how I read it. And I think that's a very uplifting and lovely concept. Pete? Okay. What?
0: What? Any, anything to add? Anything to... Do we need to go back? Have we...
1: No, we're we're, we're on the last paragraph, aren't we? We're... We are. Yeah. Shall I
0: read the last paragraph then? We shall free ourselves from any analogies and we shall enter upon the correct and direct path toward the solution of the fundamental question about the objectivity and subjectivity of space. If we shall decide to study the psychical forms by which we perceive the world, and to discover if there does not exist a correspondence between them in the three-dimensionality of the world. That is, if the, if the three-dimensional extension of space with its properties does not result from properties of the psyche which are known to us.
1: Yeah, I've got that a question marked by that. I've got a question mark by that. I haven't got a clue what that's talking about whatsoever.
0: I think, he, I think he should have finished the chapter when he said, and how do we approach the solution to this problem? Plainly, by studying our consciousness and its properties, I think he should have finished a chapter there. That was definitive enough to say, "Okay, well, well, this is
2: where the rest of the book is going." Yep, I'm with you. Pete. I agree with I you, think... Alice, because I have got yeah. four question marks yeah. beside that very paragraph myself, Pete. Whereas I was really yeah, happy. Yeah,
1: I'm with not the surprised. About, you know. Yeah, I, and... I would have been, but now he's but he has written it. So what what does he mean by it? Because I have absolutely no idea whatsoever what he means by that.
0: The only thing I can think is that he's saying, "Look, the analogies have been great. You've, you, you've, you've progressed along the journey with me. You're up to a point now that you and I are on the same page. The analogies are no longer. F- Just leave the analogies go now. They, they've served their purpose. That's what I, I think. The only thing that 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 paragraph is is putting out. We have to. We now have to to build a new scaffold. This scaffold has had its." It's done its job, and it's no longer useful on the journey forward. But as for the rest, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think he got a bit bogged down. I think you know when you know something and you and you get it, you try and explain it and it's too complicated. So you you muck around with trying to explain everything and and it's not going to work because you just need to make it simple. I don't think he's been able to make that simple. Whatever whatever he's wanted to say, he hasn't been able to say it simply.
1: If we shall decide to study the psychical forms by which we perceive the world, and to discover if there does not exist a correspondence between them and the three-dimensionality of the world, that is, if the three-dimensional extension of space with its properties does not result from properties of the psyche which are known to us. In other words, do we project three-dimensional space? In, in other words, is it a property of our psyche, our collective psyche, or does it exist external to our collective psyche?
2: Doesn't it just take us back to Hinton that... where he said I was just Hinton say says that, it's that, consciousness that we... and then he says, no, I don't agree with Hinton and we've gone around. He have yeah, just ex- done that, this exactly, huge loop and he doubles back on himself and <laughs> sometimes he's with Hinton sometimes That's exactly gets, isn't, it. Isn't it? And he doesn't, I just think, you know, I think that he is, um, I think the more he tries to explain it, the more he
1: yeah, convolutes
2: it, it. And I think that I think the essence of this whole chapter for me was that last bit where he says, we shall find, shall find exactly there the conditions of the possibility of the higher dimensionality of the world. He's saying this all doesn't fit together perfectly, means that there are things that we don't know. Look inside, in your consciousness, there are going to be the markers and the cues to show us that there's a higher dimension and not only that, for us to be able to step into that higher dimension with consciousness and therefore let's now put aside the analogies which have got so many flaws in them. They've been useful to a point. Let's go and look for something that is more consistent with reality. Well, that will answer the question.
0: That will actually answer the question. Question. Yeah. And he's got 23 chapters all up. He's seven in. Yep. Okay, well, I think we've wrapped up chapter seven. Uh, I think we've got to a, a point with it that you know we're we're ready. We're actually now ready to embark on the next the next part of the book, which which God takes a new direction. And God help us. Yes.
2: Oh yes, yes. <laughs> There's a
0: lot, a lot more to come. All right. Well, well. Thank you, Pete, again, and thank you, Sue, right. again, for your your wonderful uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed. Um, Having this conversation again, and uh, I look forward to part one, chapter eight, with you both.
2: Thank you, Alex. Thank you.